All right. Well, good evening, everybody. We're a little waterlogged, but we're here. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20? Now, we have been in uh, Exodus 20 for the last couple of weeks because it deals with the Ten Commandments. And I think it's important that we um, uh, take a little extra time uh, in this section. And last time, we got as far as the Fourth Commandment, which dealt with the Sabbath. And before we move on to the Fifth Commandment, I mentioned last time that I wanted to zero in on verse 11 for a little bit because it destroys a doctrine of creation, not the doctrine of creation, but a doctrine of creation that some people hold to known as the day-age theory. And I'm going to spend a little time on this because I think it's important, and I'll tell you why uh, at the end. But let's read verses 9 through 11. Uh, God is laying down the uh, Sabbath. He said, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle, nor your stranger uh, who was within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, uh, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now we spent a lot of time last week talking about the Sabbath, so uh, go online, listen to that study if you weren't here, uh, if you really want to understand more about the Sabbath, okay? But I want to zero in on verse 11 for a minute. Because, believe it or not, and it's getting worse, there are a lot of Christians who do not believe in a literal six-day creation. Now, when I first got saved, I think that was a minimum, okay? It's increasing more and more. In fact, I think we're in the minority now. If you put all of Christendom together, nominations, and you know, I think we're in the minority as those who believe in a six-day literal creation. I heard a pastor say about 15 years ago that uh, it was hard to find a Bible college or seminary where they didn't hold to a literal, where they uh, did hold to a literal six-day creation. I want to just zero in on this for a minute, though, because they look at the Bible and they uh, basically try to say that the six days of creation in Genesis 1 you know, the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, and so on, were actually one million or one billion year periods of time or ages, hence the day-age theory. The word day, they point out in the Hebrew, is used elsewhere in the scripture to speak of an indeterminate period of time. For example, uh, throughout the Bible, you hear the expression or read the expression, the day of the Lord. That's not talking about a literal day, obviously, but an extended period of time where God is pouring his judgment out upon the earth. And they point to that. Okay, you got the word day there, day of the Lord. That's not a 24-hour period, okay? They also like to point to 2 Peter 3.8, where Peter said, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And so these um, day-age theorists argue that the days of creation spoken of in Genesis 1 were actually long periods of time or geological ages and not literal days. And they say this explains how the earth could be billions of years old 
you know, instead of the six to 10,000 years in age, the Bible seems to indicate the world is. Some believe that during these ages, these geological ages, they're not literal days, they're ages, okay, maybe a million years each or a billion years each, but the people that hold this, some of them believe that during this time, theistic evolution took place. Theistic evolution is basically the belief where, that God created the amoeba and then let it evolve. So he was involved, but not like Genesis tells us. That's a book of myth and legend. Okay, can't take that literally, they say. So, but we do believe God was involved in the creation. We don't believe that everything came about by not, through his own means, by nothing, of course. Um, so they said, well, God created the amoeba and then let that evolve. Okay, Bible doesn't say that, but that's what they believe. Others believe that while evolution was taking place in the animal kingdom over millions of millions of years in time, then, you know, not long ago, God created man fully formed. Uh, he was not evolved from apes, uh, even though animal evolution was taking place for millions of years, they say, but then God made Adam fully formed and so on. All right, look, there's a lot of reasons or uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, offshoots of this, but let me just say this. There's numerous problems with the day-age theory view, not the least of which is that death didn't enter into the world until Adam sinned. Romans 5.12 makes that abundantly clear. And it was only through Adam's sin that death came into the world. So you can't have millions of years of animal evolution based on death and evolution without Adam there, because without Adam there was no sin, and therefore you can't have death until Adam's sin. But that's because we're so simple-minded, we just believe what the Bible says. They always get around this stuff. But even more to the point, nothing in the text implies, and I'm going back to Genesis now, nothing in the text implies that these were ages of time, on the order of millions or even billions of years in length. In fact, the language that God uses in Genesis 1 demonstrates just the opposite. opposite. Yes, the Hebrew word yom, translated day in the Old Testament, can mean an indeterminate period of time and not a literal day. That's true. But it is the exception. It is the exception. By far, when the word yom is used in the Old Testament, most always it does refer to a 24-hour day. And listen, it always refers to a 24-hour day without exception when it's coupled with a number or with the words morning or evening. In Genesis chapter 1, God uses a number and both the words morning and evening when he talks about the six days of creation to, to communicate to us that he's speaking in literal terms, not figurative terms. One example, Genesis 1.5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Listen, so the evening and the morning were the first day. The very expression, the evening and the morning, were the second day, third day, fourth day, etc., is used for all the six days of creation, indicating that these days were all the same, literal, 24-hour days. Now listen, if God wanted to communicate that these were not literal days, but rather extended periods of time, he could have easily done so by choosing other words and phrases. However, if he wanted to communicate, which I believe he did, of course, that these were literal 24-hour days, listen to me, he couldn't have made it any clearer from the language he chose to use. And if there was still any confusion as to whether God 
whether or not God took six literal days when he created the universe, he confirms it in Exodus 20, verse 11, when he was laying down the Sabbath law and how the people of Israel were to work six days a week and the seventh day they were to rest. He said, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Now, obviously he's talking about literal days and not one million or one billion year periods. That would have made for a pretty lengthy work week. He's laying down a very simple thing here. He says, you're to work six days and the seventh day rest, even as I took six days to create the universe and rested the seventh day. Since God made it so clear, you know, you know what the definition of a biblical controversy is? Someone who doesn't want to accept what the Bible is clearly saying. That, that's the definition of biblical controversy, for the most part. Somebody that doesn't want to accept what God is clearly and plainly saying. Since God made it so clear that the days of creation were literal 24-hour days, why do so many, and the number is extraordinary, why do so many Christian pastors, college professors, seminary professors, and lay people embrace the day-age theory? It's because they have been convinced that science has proven that the earth is billions of years old and that evolution is true. They've been convinced of that. And because of it, they have to make the Bible and in particular, the creation account in Genesis compatible with the teachings of modern science so that we Christians don't look like a bunch of backwards, brainless idiots. It is a capitulation to the wisdom of man at the expense of the Word of God. Very simple, all right? They don't believe the Bible can be trusted when it speaks clearly on these things because if the Bible contradicts science, the Bible must be wrong. Not that science is wrong, and it's been wrong over and over again throughout the ages as man's information increases on certain things with regard to science, his views change on things. There's never been a science textbook yet that hasn't been, you know, revised and updated. You never see a Bible on the shelf at your local Christian bookstore new and revised. Well, maybe you do nowadays, I don't know. But the idea is God's word has never had to be updated or revised and so on. So, and I make a big deal out of this because guess what? I am so tired of people taking what the Bible is clearly saying, what God has done everything in his power to make absolutely clear, and because they don't want to accept it, they twist it and they read into it, and suddenly now everyone's doubting. Can I really read my Bible and trust it? And this is what really bothers me. Look, Jesus talked about the virtue of being like children when we come to God or his word. If God wrote for theologians, then none of us would really understand his word. But he kept it simple. All right, now, yes, there are some very deep truths that scholars take years to even understand. But we can still understand them in their basics. But I just wanted to point that out because, you know, Exodus 20, verse 11 is just a, a, a verse that shoots down this whole day-age theory that says, no, these were not literal days. These were, you know, large amounts of time, geological ages. And you know what God says? No, they weren't. I told you in Exodus 20, 11, just as I took six days to create everything, so you're to work six days. Seventh day, you rest. All right, I think that's enough. 
That then, guys, brings us to the fifth commandment, which starts the second table of the law. Now remember, God's law, the moral commandments, the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, were, were divided into two tables, two tablets. The first tablet had uh, four laws that dealt with Israel's relationship with God. The second table had six laws that dealt with their relationship uh, to their fellow man. You say, well, wait a minute, you're saying Israel. Okay, dealt with Israel, but don't these commandments also apply to us as Christians? Doesn't God want us to obey these also? Yes, but with a caveat. And I'll get to the caveat when we're done looking at the uh, last six commandments of the Decalogue. So commandment number five, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. I don't have to tell you guys, we are living in a day when youth is valued and even worshipped. Now, that's great if you're a youth. For a guy like me, it's a little tougher. Okay, uh, But we're living in a day where youth is so prized, it's so valued and even worshipped that many try to hold on to it as long as they can. Of course, through cosmetics, if you're a woman. Uh, but even men today are entering into surgeries uh, to regain or keep that youthful look. Okay? Um, have you seen some of the folks that are older who have had surgeries to look younger? Uh, some of these poor people look like a science experiment gone wrong. I mean, it's just something to see our, our culture and uh, how we are uh, prizing youth and valuing youth to the point where we're obsessed with it. Now, of course, the flip side of that is, as we value and worship youth, we do not value the elderly. In fact, in many cultures, the elderly, they're looked upon, especially cultures that have socialized medicine, they're looked upon as a drain to society because really they've outlived their usefulness. They're no longer really productive members of society. They're up there in age, you know, 70, 80, whatever. And therefore, you know, in some of these countries, they're almost expected, because they've had uh, a doctor-assisted suicide for years, some of these uh, countries. And um, it's, it's not really spoken outwardly, but it's kind of understood in some places that, you know, if you're that old and you are sick, well, you know, you really are a drain to the rest of us. You know, you lived a good life. Maybe it's time that you check out, you know. In fact, I heard one person, a, a testimony, that... Um, they were in that position in the Netherlands or some place that had this stuff going on. And uh, they felt guilty that they were sick and felt like they were a burden on their family. So they contacted one of these doctors and they uh, had the doctor euthanize them because they felt guilty that they were now a burden to their family. And so, guys, it's tragic that so many in Western culture uh, have come to see the elderly in such a negative light. But you know what? God never, ever wanted this to be for his people Israel. Or the rest of us. He did not want us to look down on the elderly. And he wanted us, of course, to view them with honor and to treat them with respect until their dying day. Now, you don't have to turn to these. You can write them down if you want. I just pulled a few scriptures that God has put in his word that deal with, our, deal with what should be our attitude uh, toward the elderly. Uh, Exodus 21, verses 15 and 17 and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Wow. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. I'm not sure how many times they actually did that with their kids, but every kid knew it was on the books. Okay? You know? 
So, you know, you better respect mom and dad because you know what? You know, and it was sometimes it was the whole community took it upon themselves to bring this. So it wasn't just that the parents wanted it. If the community saw that a child was very rebellious, teenager was very rebellious to their parents, the community might take it upon themselves to impose this judgment. Leviticus 19, verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, for I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 27, verse 16. Cursed is the man who treats his father or his mother with contempt, and all the people shall say amen. Proverbs 23, verse 22. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, uh, and the young eagles will eat it. Wow, it's pretty graphic. The eye that mocks his father, scorns his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick out that eye, and the eagles will devour it. And I'll give you one more, Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 3, where Paul said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Now listen to me. I do believe that Ephesians 6, verse 3 has a personal application, and I'll get to it at the very end of what I want to say. But I, I really think in my heart that Paul is primarily stating a promise from God for people, excuse me, I don't think Paul is stating a promise from God for people personally. He is laying down a principle for society collectively. In other words, I'm not really sure that what Paul is saying is that if a person honors their parents all the days of their parents' life, that God promises to give them a long life on the earth. Rather, I think Paul had society in mind. That if all children in a society will honor their parents, that will build, listen to me, a strong society that will last and not crumble and fall. And I believe that's what Paul is saying because in Ephesians 6, 3, he is quoting from Exodus 20, verse 12, which once again reads, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land. He's talking about the nation them remaining in the land of promise uh, for a long time, implying that if they don't do what God is commanding, it will lead to the nation being taken from the land or out being put outside of God's blessing, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Look, by commanding us to honor our fathers and mothers, I believe God is indirectly laying down, again, the principle for a strong home, in a stable society, which, guys, is rooted in respect for authority. You see, the Lord knew, of course, that respect for authority begins in the home, as children are made to respect their parents' authority over their lives. And once they respect their parents' authority, as they are in the home for that number of years until they leave the home, but that respect for authority will then be carried out into society. When the children become teenagers and adults, they will respect teachers, police officers, bosses, government leaders, etc. So the idea that I believe God is communicating or expressing through the fifth commandment 
is that if children will honor and obey their parents when they are young, listen, that will produce a respect for authority at every level of society when they grow up. And that will then produce a strong and stable society that will last and not crumble into anarchy. Not to mention, not to mention, will build into that society a love and respect for the elderly. Because you're honoring them from the time you're little. You're, you're taught to revere your parents. You honor them. And if you're taught that from a young age, the older you get and the older they get, you will continue to honor them. And you will honor them right up until the day they die by taking care of them as best you can. I realize some people cannot take care of uh, their uh, elderly parents because they have uh, medical conditions that are better handled by professionals. So, you know, um, if you can find a, a good place that will take care of them, uh, you know, or at least, um, what do they call it, where you have assisted living even. That's wonderful. You're not abandoning them. But in the old days, of course, it was the 2020 rule. Your parents took care of you for the first 20 years of your life. You were to take care of them for the last 20 years of their lives. And it worked out very well in society for a lot of years. I mean, you know, among, especially among God's uh, people, the Jews, okay? They really revered and respected their elders. You see this a lot. That Israel is, is Middle East, but you see this a lot also in the Far East in China and other places like that, they revere their elderly. And, uh, and, and the whole family seems to work better uh, that way. Now, when it comes to the prophecies in the Bible, guys, concerning the conditions that will be on the earth in the last days, we're told a lot of things that are coming. We, we hear about the love of many growing cold. We, we hear about evil men and women getting worse and worse, becoming more and more emboldened to do evil. We read about... Um, you know, uh, social unrest and anarchy and, and uh, people running wild with sexual desires and so on, okay? We just see what's coming is going to be, the Bible is describing a breakdown of society. And one of the main causes for this is going to be the breakdown of the family. In fact, the, the main cause is going to be the breakdown of the family unit manifested in the rebellion of young people against their parents' authority, which then gets out into the society and where they rebel against other forms of authority, including and especially God's authority. And we're seeing this all around us, aren't we? Many young people are out, uh, just out of control and have no respect for their parents, their teachers, the police, and for anyone else in authority in our culture. We are seeing it in our public school system with teachers being beaten up by their students. I just read before I came over here, another, uh, this is becoming every day, uh, another a story of a teacher being severely beaten by a student in class. We also see it, this uh, rebellion and violence in the streets of some of our cities, like last summer with uh, Baltimore and uh, the city of Ferguson. Guys, this is bringing our society to the brink of anarchy, chaos, and destruction as a nation. And I don't say that lightly. I really believe it. I believe what I saw last summer, the... Uh, teenagers in, uh, I can't remember if it was Baltimore or Ferguson, who were throwing rocks at the police officers who had to have these full shields in front of plastic, you know, shields. But, but you know, the kids were nailing them in the shins and things. When I saw that, I thought, Lord, I am looking at a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Society is breaking down. Again, I've told you this when I was a kid. I had such reverential respect for the I would never look at a police officer cross-eyed I would never talk back to a police officer 
let alone throw a rock at one. This is where we are as a nation. And again, this is bringing our society to the brink of anarchy, chaos, and destruction. In other words, we are living out in some part, in some way, the consequences of violating the fifth commandment in our country. Not that this is the only reason for the problems we see in our nation, but I'll tell you what, all of these problems, I'm going to go on record and say this, all the problems we see in society, I, I tell you the truth, is rooted, it starts in the home. All the problems we see with young people trace it back to what happened in the home. Not that every parent that has a rebellious child is a bad parent, but we're not a culture that is forcing our kids to respect us as adults. One of the things my kids could never do was disrespect their mom and I. We didn't think it was cute when they talked back to us. I didn't let it slide. If they manifested any backtalk or rebellion, they were disciplined. Because that is something we just wouldn't tolerate. And they wouldn't dare try to play their mother against me because we were both on the same page. And they knew it. Don't go to your mom. She's not going to give you a break. If dad said something, don't go to mom. She's not going to undo it. And vice versa. Do you realize that delinquency in our country is increasing seven times faster than the population? Why are so many children and young people, why have they become so rebellious? It's because too many parents are not there to discipline them when they do wrong and are not taking seriously their responsibility as parents, especially Christian parents I'm thinking of, to properly train them up in the ways of the Lord. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs 22, verse 6? He said, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, right? He didn't say teach a child. Train a child. Different. I can teach you how to play football. It's not the same as training you how to play football. We need as parents to train our children. Lay down the principle, take it out into real life. If they violate the principle, then they have to, you know, see what they need to do to fix it. Proverbs 22, verse 15 Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him or her. God is not against spanking, okay? I would never spank my children. Well, then prepare yourself for a lifetime of anguish. Well, I just talk to them, okay? So you play, you know, mom the psychologist. When those kids are little, they don't understand what you're saying. They understand a little rap on the rear end, all right? Not child abuse. It's a little rap on the bottom. Get the point across. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of correct, the loving rod of correction will drive us from them. I've read this to you before. Let me read it again. Some years ago, the Minnesota Crime Commission, in the face of a growing juvenile delinquency epidemic, made this assessment, and I quote, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, deny him these once, and he's seized with, seized with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if he were not so helpless. He's dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, and no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child will grow up to be a criminal, a killer, or a rapist, end quote. And yet, guys, that is precisely what is happening as more and more parents are absent parents. Whether we're talking about young men who father children out of wedlock, 
and then leave the mothers to raise the kids. And often the mother's working two jobs then to put food on the table for the kids. So she's gone all the time. She's not there for the kids through no fault of her own. She's trying to survive. Or maybe we're talking about one or both parents being addicted to crack or alcoholics or both. And so they're not there emotionally for their kids. They can't give them the love, the guidance, the instruction that they need. So they grow up in the streets and maybe look to an older gangbanger to be a surrogate father and a role model. And that never works out well, right? The result is we are seeing a generation of rebellious, selfish children who grow up into dangerous, violent criminals, and we all pay the price for that, all society. This is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy concerning the last days, guys. I'll have you turn to 2 Timothy 3. Listen to what Paul says. You tell me this isn't evening news. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 3. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people, not just teenagers now, but people in general, people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. Are we not seeing that in our culture today? Look, if children are going to honor their parents, then parents are going to need to honor their responsibility to be the kind of parents that honor God. And that's just the bottom line. Now look, guys, the idea of honoring your parents so that you live a long life on the earth could be applied personally in this regard. A life of disobedience and sin often leads to premature death. And all we have to do to understand that is to watch the evening news and see what's happening on the streets of Chicago every day. And those young people losing their lives because of gangs and drugs. Which leads us really to the Sixth Amendment. Thou shalt not murder. As we've already pointed out, the correct translation is murder and not kill, as the King James Version uh, has it, thou shalt not kill. It's really that, the, the Hebrew is really thou shalt not or you shall not murder. But for many years, people would read their King James Bible and see how that God in the Sixth Commandment forbid us from killing, and they would use, use it as a basis for pacifism. Uh, not going to war, not fighting in a war. Or as the reason for outlawing, outlawing capital punishment in society. Because God said we were to kill. But again, what God is actually commanding is you shall not murder. God is not a pacifist. Okay, all you got to do is read your Bible. God is not a pacifist. In fact, he has led his people into many battles and wars against his enemies. In fact, in Exodus 15, verse 3, it actually calls the Lord a man of war. A man of war. People think, well, we shouldn't kill because Jesus was a pacifist. Really? Did you see how he made that whip? and started turning over the tables in the temple and whipping people and driving them out? That doesn't seem like the actions of a pacifist. You should read Revelation 19. When he finally comes back, the first thing he's going to do is wipe out a whole bunch of people. All the rebels who have gathered together to go to war against him. 
He fights against them with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, his word. The same word that spoke the universe into existence is the same word he speaks will vaporize these people. He is no pacifist. He is a loving, caring God who wants to show mercy and not bring judgment. But if people refuse to repent, he will judge them. And as far as the death penalty is concerned, God was the one who instituted it in Genesis 9, verse 6, where we read, God speaking, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made men. God made men. Therefore, since God is the one who made us, gave us life, only God has the right to take it away. And if a person takes another person's life, a person, of course, who was made in the image of God, if another person takes their life, God says they forfeit their own life. Oh, but we shouldn't do that. Life is precious. That's exactly what God is saying. Because life is precious, the person who takes another person's life, murders them, they have to be executed. The Sixth Commandment, guys, was a prohibition against a man or a woman murdering another man or woman, not against society exercising capital punishment upon those that deserve it as a way of keeping violent people in check. Turn to Romans 13. Romans 13, starting with verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, God has ordained government. God has ordained government because without government, you would have anarchy. Nobody can survive in anarchy. You have anarchists who think, we don't need government. What you would wind up with is jungle law, survival of the fittest, the strong preying on the weak. God has given us human government to keep law in order so that we all function in a way that we, so we can all have a good life. And so Paul is saying, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, that doesn't mean that God is responsible for all, these, for all the evil things these authorities do. God allows people to be put in power and then, then mandates that they are to act rightly towards the people that they are in authority over. Of course, that doesn't happen. And those people will stand before God someday and give an account. The Saddam Husseins and the Pol Pots and the, and the Stalins and so on, they will stand before God someday. and give. And you wouldn't want to be in their shoes. But God is saying, the point Paul is making is that God has established human governments. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. In other words, you do good stuff, your leaders aren't going to, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to, you know, come down on you, Right? Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? You want to, you know, not fear the government? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister, whoever you're talking about in government who is in authority. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. Listen, for he does not bear the sword in vain. God has given human government the right of capital punishment. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, something that Solomon said we need to bring in right here. All right, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, I'll paraphrase. 
because the sentence upon an evil work is not carried out speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are bent on doing evil continually. When you put a guy in prison for 20 or 30 years on death row, that's not really a deterrent to somebody else who's thinking about being violent and killing people. I'm convinced if somebody was arrested for murder, I, I believe you need to bring that trial as quickly as possible. And then after the verdict, you don't wait years. And I know that we have an appeal process, and I, I guess to some extent it, it's good. There's a lot of people who have been railroaded. I know that. But I'm just saying in general, you can't put somebody on death row for 30 years and expect that's going to deter the rest from doing an evil deed. We have to, in some way, bring the sentences upon these evil deeds quickly so that society fears the punishment. So God in the Sixth Commandment forbid us from murdering another human being. But what in the eyes of God constitutes murder? You say, what do you mean? Well, we have to explore, explore this. I think this is a good time to see how Jesus defines some of the commandments in the Decalogue like you shall not murder. Turn to Matthew 5. And I knew, know that you knew this is where I was going with this because you have to bring this in, all right? Listen to what Jesus said now. He's talking to his disciples, of course, but he's also referring to the scribes. And We'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what he says to his disciples. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The word judgment there is a word that means capital punishment, okay? So, you know, you've heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders is in danger of being executed, capital punishment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, the word we get our word moron from, you moron, okay, shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said. He's got the scribes and the Pharisees in mind when he said this. You see, they had misinterpreted the law of God, making it a purely outward or external thing. And since they had not murdered anyone physically, well, they believed they had kept the sixth commandment and were therefore righteous in that regard, because they had never murdered anybody. But in fact, they were missing the whole point. The law wasn't just external, it was also internal. In other words, it was not only given by God to govern the outward actions of our lives, but listen, also the inward attitudes of our hearts. In fact, we can make a case that what Jesus is saying is that the spirit of the law, listen, the spirit of the law, we can make a case that Jesus is really saying the spirit of the law is really what matters, not necessarily the letter of the law. More, more, it matters more than the letter of the law. Well, why would he say that? Because the spirit of the law can often be violated when the letter of the law is kept. What do I mean? Well, thou shalt not lie. You don't have to lie to somebody to mislead them. You can tell them a half-truth, okay? Or you can be silent when they're talking, giving them, instead of saying, well, no, that's not the way it happened, and I didn't really do the work. The other one did. This one did. They should get the credit. When the boss comes to you and says, I just saw the work you did. That was incredible work. I'm going to put you in for a bonus. 
and you just stay silent. Well, I didn't really lie. He just assumed. You have kept the letter of the law, but violated the spirit. Or thou shalt not steal. This is, I think, probably happened to everybody in this room. You know, your, your groceries, are, the checker is checking your groceries, right? And they're sliding it down to the thing there, and the bagger's putting it in a bag. And then the guy right behind you, well, one of his stuff gets mixed in with your stuff and gets put in your own. You don't pay for it, it gets put in your bag, right? You see what's going on, but you don't say anything. Because after all, I didn't take it. They, they gave it to me, you know. Or the cashier gives you too much change back, but you don't say anything. And again, the reasoning is, well, I didn't steal it. They, they gave it to me. It wasn't my fault. It was their fault. You've kept the letter of the law, but you violated the spirit. And um, you know, the same goes with murder, for murder and adultery. Um, we'll talk about adultery next week. But you see, it's the attitudes of the heart which matter most to God, not the outward actions, because again, outward actions are not always the truest indicator of how upright we really are. Remember what God said, God said through Samuel to Saul, right, King Saul? Uh, I'm sorry, this was, what I'm talking about is uh, when God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. And Jesse sees the first son come before him, Eliab, and he's the oldest, good-looking kid, tall, dark, handsome kid. And Samuel says in his heart, this has got to be the Lord's anointed. And God speaks to him right away and says, no, no. The Lord, for the Lord does not see as I've rejected him, God says to Samuel. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And of course, Psalm 7, verse 9, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. God judges everything we do. He judges everything we do based on our attitudes and the motives of our heart when we do them. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, um, and I believe this is what Paul is saying. He is saying that on the earth we can do certain works for God. Okay, we can serve the Lord. Two people can serve God in ministry. Two people will say can give to God the same amount of money even. But one does it out of a sincere and honest love for Jesus Christ in wanting to see the kingdom of God expanded. And the other does it to be seen by men to maybe buy authority in the church by giving a lot of money to the church. And God accepts the offering of one and rejects the offering of the other even though their actions were exactly the same. Because God looks at the heart. And the motive of your heart, why you did what you did, is more important to God than what you did. Because again, we can do a lot of good things that are the, right, are the wrong motives and God does not accept them. And uh, I think that's the whole point of uh, Jesus, uh, what he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's clarifying God's intent. When God commanded, you shall not murder, Jesus Christ is clarifying what he meant because the Pharisees and scribes had misinterpreted it. Uh, that murder in the eyes of God goes beyond the physical act because it starts in the heart with hatred. That's the idea. You can't separate the action from the motive that led to the action. This is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were focusing solely on the action, and it didn't matter what was in their hearts. And Jesus says, oh, no. Don't you understand that God looks at the heart? You cannot divorce the action from the emotion or the motive that led to the action in the eyes of god murder is not just a physical act 
It's what's in the heart because murder always starts in the heart with hatred. And guys, even if it never escalates into physical murder, the hatred in a person's heart towards another is tantamount in the eyes of God to murder, which Jesus said he would hold a person accountable for on the day of judgment. People are going to be judged not just for their outward actions but for their inward attitudes. Hatred, lust, covetousness. We're going to see with the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, that was the one that blew Saul of Tarsus out of the water. Because he realized for the first time, and it might have been at his own bar mitzvah, they think. When he bar mitzvah means son of the law. When he was old enough now to be responsible for keeping the laws, any Jewish boy hits 13, and other girls go through a bar mitzvah too. And maybe Paul was, or Saul at that time, was going over the commandments. And for the first time in his life, he really understood, wait a minute, all these other ones deal with outward actions. But the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, that deals with inward attitudes. Uh-oh. All my life, I thought I was keeping the law because I hadn't murdered, I hadn't committed adultery. But now I realize, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but now I realize that God is not just looking at the outward, he's looking at the inward. And when I realized the law was not just external, but it was internal, it killed me. I was done. I realized I hadn't kept the law my entire life. And that brought him to saving faith. Anyways, I just want you to, to know that how God sees these things. You see, Jesus is saying that not only did the scribes and the Pharisees reduce the law to merely outward actions, but they reduced the consequences so that they were only temporal and not eternal. Again, the law deals with consequences for violating it, or at least it did in Israel's day. And um, so the scribes and Pharisees focusing on the outward, uh, you know, and the consequences of violating the law, uh, were going around teaching don't murder anybody, because if you murder somebody, you know what? It's going to be your head. There's going to be consequences, capital punishment. Forget about the moral implications. Forget about, you know, killing somebody, an innocent person, a person made in the image of God, that you wind up killing for whatever selfish reason you do that. Forget about your heart in the matter. It's just that don't do it because you don't want to, you don't want to have the consequences. Hey, look, I think that the fear of consequences is a valid reason for not breaking the law. It's not the best reason. And that's what the new covenant was all about. It wasn't about outward actions. It was about God writing his law in our hearts so that we obeyed him from the heart with the right motives. But again, their teaching had nothing to do with morality. It just turned an outward law into a purely self-centered kind of thing. And again, the focus was on the consequences rather than on the sanctity of life of the person that you had murdered or were thinking of murdering. And so now Jesus corrects the misguided teachings of the scribes and Pharisees by saying in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, I'll just skip down to verse 22, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of capital punishment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means you fool, is in danger of the council. And whoever calls another a moron, okay, is in danger of hell fire. Jesus here goes back to the attitude that leads to the action of murder. Again, starts in the heart and reminds us that it's not the letter of the law God is really looking at or that's important to him, but the spirit of the law. It's what's on the inside that matters most to God because sin always starts in the heart. Even as Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 19, 
For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and so on. So even if you never actually carry out the act of murder, the thoughts of anger and hatred in a person's heart towards another make them a murderer in the eyes of God. Now, I just wanted to uh, talk about that because of the uh, misunderstanding that evolved really from the time God gave the law through many centuries where the Jews uh, interpreted it and reinterpreted it and, you know, uh, applied it in certain ways that by the time you got to Jesus' day, the Pharisees and scribes had so twisted it. First of all, what was the purpose of the law? To make them righteous in God's eyes? No, to do, to do what? To show them their sin. Through the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right, Romans 3? But you know what the Pharisees did? God purposely made his law so high and lofty that no one could ever attain to it on a regular basis. Nobody could ever keep it perfectly. You know what the scribes and Pharisees did? They dragged it down to where it was doable. And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's letting you say, well, gee, that Sermon on the Mount's hard to read. Because, wow, I mean, if I call somebody a moron, I'm in danger of going to hell? Well, he's talking to Jewish unbelievers. Okay, I mean, they were Jewish believers in Judaism, but they didn't really know the truth. And he wanted to show them, look, you're not keeping the law at all. If you just think in your heart, that guy's a moron and he's going to hell. That is the basis for you being sent to hell. Uh-oh, say, what does that do? It makes me a little nervous. It shows me that I haven't really kept the law myself. And what does that do? Well, Paul tells us it draws us to Christ for his righteousness then. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount... Don't read it as Jesus teaching something that we need to be doing. He's giving an, an impossible standard that none of us can attain to. And the point was to show these his disciples the kind of righteousness that was going to get them into heaven was not the kind the scribes and Pharisees were teaching through human works. It was, come to me. Okay, I will give you the righteousness you need to get into heaven. It's my righteousness, which I will give to you through your faith. So, Next week, we'll continue on. I think we'll probably finish the Decalogue next week. Um, but we'll pick it up with the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, as we see it in its context, we understand what you are saying to us. And yes, Lord, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, it was, it's devastating because it, it shows that we're all guilty. But that's good. Because the law is supposed to show us our guilt, to drive us to you for righteousness. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have come to you. And by our faith, we have received you into our heart and life as our Lord and Savior. And you have applied your righteousness to our account. And now you want us to live these things, not lying or stealing or committing adultery and so on. Not because there are punishments attached if we disobey but because we're your children now and because we love you and you've written your laws in our hearts, we should want to obey from the heart that you might be glorified. So give us grace, Lord, to be a light and to do what's right for your glory. Father, we ask all this and we ask you to continue to bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.